This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Well, hello everyone. This is Matt Martin uh, with East Trauma Cast. We've got a, a great topic today uh, and two great speakers. We're going to be talking about Roboa, uh, obviously one of the big hot topics in trauma now. Uh, and so we'll uh, let our speakers introduce themselves. Uh, first, we have Laura Moore. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thank you for inviting me. This is Laura Moore from Houston, Texas. I'm at uh, University of Texas in Houston at the Red Duke Trauma Institute. And I'm the Chief of Surgical Critical Care and an Associate Professor of Surgery uh, in Houston. All right. And we have Elizabeth Benjamin. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Benjamin. Uh, I'm coming here from uh, Los Angeles. I am an Assistant Professor down at uh, Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. Okay. And and for everyone, this is a kind of a preview uh, podcast for our upcoming live webinar on Roboa. Uh, that's going to be uh, the first week of October. You can check that out on the East website for registration. Um, so, so again, obviously, Robo is a current hot topic. Uh, and first, we'll just start with asking you. You know, uh, Laura, you're, you're, you've become a nationally recognized expert on Roboa. Um, just h- how did you get involved with Roboa, and you know, become kind of such a prominent proponent for it? Well, I was very fortunate to be invited to San Antonio by Todd Rasmussen. Uh, to train at the E-STARS course. At the time, they were validating the educational curriculum and needed surgeons to come go through the course uh, to val- not only validate the training protocol, but also the um, testing component of it. So I was uh, invited to go and uh, spent two days in San Antonio, and that's where I met Megan Brenner. She was also taking the course at uh, the same time, and that initiated our collaboration with each other uh, as well as my uh, introduction to Todd Rasmussen, and, and that's how I initially became trained and interested in the use of Roboa. All right, and how about you, Elizabeth? Well, um, we have sort of picked up Roboa at, uh, at USC, not probably at the start when you guys did, but uh, we have learned about it through, um, uh, through Megan and Todd and uh, you know, sort of all the same channels. Uh, we've started using it probably about in the last... Uh, year uh, on on our patients, we do uh, training in house uh, using our cadaver lab, and so we train our fellows and our staff uh, that way. And, and so, did you attend any of the the formal courses, or you did your in house training programs? No, I didn't attend any of the formal courses. Um, we have uh, we have done training. Kenji Anaba is probably the first person that brought it uh, to our institution, and uh, and through him, we've trained up the faculty and then the fellows as they go through. Okay. Well, so that, that leads right into training for this. Um, so first off, assuming we're just talking about surgeons, so so people who have basic can access a femoral artery or a vein. Um, and and I have, I've had some surgeons say, I know how to access the femoral artery, and sliding up a catheter is easy, so why shouldn't I just start using this? So, so what, what do you think the training requirements should be, let's say for your average trauma surgeon, who has all the skills of a trauma surgeon but has no experience formally with Roboa. Uh, I want to start with you, Laura. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, whoever's going to be doing this needs to be aware that it, it, is, it is a catheter that's exchanged over a wire, um, which is something that all surgeons are familiar with. But there is potential to cause harm to the patient, um, specifically uh, related to uh, femoral artery dissection and distal thrombosis. And so it's, it's not quite as straightforward as, say, putting in an arterial line or a, a central line that, that maybe doesn't carry that same risk. So part of the obligation uh, for training, I think, is that you go to a course where you not only learn how to insert the catheter and the sheaths and, and the wires, but also you learn how to deal with the potential complications that can occur if, if things don't go well. Um, the 14 or 12 French sheath systems that uh, we had before we had the current 7 French system uh, are what a lot of hospitals still have available. And so knowing how to properly repair uh, that arteriotomy that you make when you put in a 12 or 14 French sheath is, is a really critical final step of the process. And so I think training programs are obligated to teach that component as well, how to properly repair that artery so that you don't have limb loss from the technique. Yeah, I, mean, I think Laura brings up a good point as well of the, the technical aspects of putting in the catheter are definitely one thing to learn, but probably most surgeons, especially trauma surgeons, are going to have the ability to learn the technical procedure. It's not that, you know, that complicated. But uh, one of the big components is knowing who to put it in because it is not without complication. I mean, definitely things can happen, and there are uh, definitely several potential pitfalls. And uh, in the right patient, it's worth it to take that risk and do it. But if you're doing it uh, in, in patients that are maybe not appropriately selected, uh, you're, you're introducing increased risk in a situation that's not necessary. Okay, and, and I agree with that. My concerns about this technology really aren't the technical stuff, it's the patient selection. For sure. Um, but so what would you recommend for, again, the average trauma surgeon who wants to start doing this? Because there's been a couple of courses. You mentioned E-STARS. Um, what, what, what are the available courses, well, or what would you recommend? I mean, I'm a big advocate of the BEST course, which uh, was developed in Baltimore. Um, I'm a, a part of that course, and that course has actually been taken over by the American College of Surgeons, and so it will become a, uh, you know, valid, um, credentialed course through the ACS that will be offered right now, Houston, Baltimore, very shortly in Sacramento, we think, um, and at other centers where we, we have surgeons that have clinical experience with the technique. I think that there's a real value in learning how to do this from someone that has actually, you know, done it as part of their clinical practice. And just because of how new the technique is, there's really not a lot of centers right now that have extensive experience with it. Um, so for the moment, I think some of the training is, is limited by... Um, experience, but as more and more centers start to do this, I think there will be more and more places that are that are capable of, of having it incorporated as part of their training for their residents and fellows. Uh, but until that we get to that point, I think it's important to try to go learn from people that have, you know, the knowledge, whether that's through E-STARS or BEST or some other programs where there are surgeons that know the risk, know the benefits, know the complications, and are and are capable of teaching other surgeons so that we can do this safely and not hurt patients. 
And, and so uh, I know the best got taken over by Rare College of Surgeons. So has that process been completed, and is, is it now a, an available yes, so ACS course? It is through the ACS. Um, the course is already running, up and running in Baltimore, and we'll be having our first course in Houston in November. Um, and so you'll get a certificate just like you would for ATLS or anything else that's offered through the college, which I think will probably be helpful for some institutions that are going to require some sort of certificate for the credentialing process. Oh, great. And so so for our listeners, if they were interested in that, how would they find information about course dates and signing They should up? email me, and, and we'll have the e- email available on the website, or Megan Brunner, and uh, and we can give you a list of open courses for, for best. Okay, great. And, w- and we'll put a link on the uh, website for the trauma cast under this podcast. Um, so, Elizabeth, why don't you tell us a little bit about the training program that you guys used, and, and I know BEST uses the simulators, right? So, BEST is a combination. It's a, you know, day-long course. We start out with a didactic session in the morning with some uh, simulated hands-on uh, training, and then in the afternoon we spend in the cadaver lab uh, training in both the uh, CODA system as well as the Pry time system. So you learn the 14 French system as well as the 7 French, including, you know, doing a cut down to gain access and then repair of the artery uh, when you pull the sheath. So it's, we, we train in both systems based upon the fact that we know not everybody's going to have you know, the seven French system in their hospital. Okay, great. And, and Elizabeth, you guys have done extensive cadaver work mm-hmm. and training and publications. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you, and who do you train on your cadavers? Do you just train the fellows or do you train in residence? Yeah, so so we're very fortunate. We have this uh, fresh tissue dissection lab that, that we use, which we're able to use for training. It is used uh, both for fellows and medical students and residents, and, and even not just surgery residents, we use it. Uh, for the emergency physicians. We use it across the hospital. Um, The nice thing about this system is it's a a perfused cadaver system, and so the uh, you know the vessels are are plumped up, perfused, uh, you know, with a sort of paint uh, based system, so you can have nice, you know, red for arteries, blue for veins. Um, and we have incorporated in the past year, we have a formalized uh, fellow curriculum that we do sort of for advanced uh, trauma procedures, and we've incorporated Reboa into that. Um, for the technical aspect of it, we do the didactic sessions separately, but uh, in the cadaver lab, we, uh, we bring our fellows in and they use this perfused cadaver. We do both percutaneous and cut down techniques. And then we have only recently gotten the seven, seven French sheets. So traditionally we've been doing it using the larger um, and take them through the process and get them familiar. I think the speed obviously of being able to change out the wires, get the catheter in safely in an expeditious fashion is important. Um, so they have a chance to train that. And then, um, and then we do uh, as well we sort of expand that that session doing a thoracotomy and an X-lap as well. So you can sort of see the different positions of the balloon so they can kind of see where it, where it's going and how it will correlate, uh, you know, were they to have to get open operative exposure to that area as well. So I think that adds something nice for them uh, in their training. Um, but for the technical procedure, uh, we use that perfused cadaver and then obviously the closure of the arteriotomy. Okay, and on our webinar, we're going to really go into the technical details and, and how you place it, but why don't we just real quick hit the very high points. Um, so we won't talk about femoral artery access. We'll assume everybody knows how to do that. Um, what, are, what are the technical high points of 
placing the balloon and, and placing it where you want it, Laura? Well, so I think the femoral artery access is for us and our experience has been the key part, right? So patients that um, are pulseless, it's very difficult to blindly percutaneously access the artery. So in those patients, uh, you either need to use an ultrasound and, and have that readily available or, you know, perform a cut down if, if you don't have that. Uh, but once the arterial access is gained, then it depends on which system you're using. Um, the things I will say about the 14 French system, you know, the fact, the additional step of having the Amplatz wire, which is extremely long, it's 260 centimeters, it hangs off the foot of the bed in the trauma bay, um, so it's it's not optimal, which is why I think the, the 7 French system is much better. But, um, you know, confirming that the wire is in the correct uh, position is a critical step in the uh, 14 French system. Uh, and then selecting your, you know, zone of occlusion, zone one or zone three, depending on your FAST exam, uh, and, and then measuring, inserting to the appropriate distance and inflating. Um, with the seven French system, obviously the step of wire insertion has been left out, which is a, a nice improvement. And there's also uh, markers on the catheters now. So instead of having to just kind of guesstimate and either put a, a tape or a mark on the, on the catheter, you actually can measure and say, I'm gonna insert it to 24 centimeters based on, you know, this is where the xiphoid is or this is where the embolicus is on the patient. And then the key step there is before you inflate the balloon, you want to confirm on plain radiograph that the, the, the catheter is in the position that you intend it to be in before you inflate. And so you said confirm the wires in position and then the catheter. So are you doing these under real-time fluoro or are you just taking spot x-rays? In Houston, we have digital uh, flat plate radiographs in all the trauma bays that are mounted to the ceiling. So it's very easy for us to get uh, an x-ray and our X-ray techs respond and are present in the room on arrival for all of our trauma activations. So we don't use live fluoro. We just use plain digital X-ray. Okay. And how about at L.A. County, Elizabeth? Although I'd love to say we have that mounted, ready to go. <laughs> we don't. Our X-ray techs are present, and they're, um, you know, the, that system is in place. But uh, I think for a lot of, probably a lot of the country, you know, that, that system is probably a little bit more difficult to attain rapidly. So for us, we use uh, measurements uh, to determine our, our balloon. Uh, if we had to wait for an x-ray and point that through, that would be a bit time prohibitive. So do you confirm placement on x-ray, or do you just use the measurements and inflate the, the balloon? and then the measurement and inflate the balloon, correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the most important thing, or who should we be doing this on? Um, and, and we'll start off from knowing there's a difference between zone, putting it in zone one, thoracic aorta, or zone three, the abdominal aorta. So, uh, so Laura, what, what are your guys' indications for doing ROBOA? So our institutional algorithm um, is based upon initial vital signs, so patients that are hypotensive, which we've defined as systolic blood pressure less than 90, that either don't respond to an initial, you know, one and one or two and two. Uh, we are, uh, with that initial blood pressure of 90, we're getting common femoral artery access for just a standard 18-gauge arterial line to monitor. And then at, simultaneously, those patients are getting blood products because they're hypotensive and we presume it's from bleeding. Um, 
while that's happening, the chest x-ray is being done, the fast exam is being done, if the patient is still hypotensive um, and we've got a negative chest x-ray ruling out, you know, significant mediastinal, you know, major vascular injury, and we have a positive FAST exam, then that patient would be considered a good candidate for Reboa. So they're hypotensive, they have not responded to an initial challenge of blood products, and they have a positive FAST, then we would do a zone one inflation. If the patient has a negative FAST, but a positive uh, pelvis x-ray, you know, for significant pelvic fracture, then that patient would be a candidate for zone three. If the FAST is negative and the pelvic x-ray is negative, but the patient is still in shock, then it um, becomes a little more difficult. Uh, we would still advocate for zone one in those patients because they could have retroperitoneal hemorrhage that you don't detect on FAST, or the FAST could be you know, a false negative, which we know happens. So uh, if you still think it's a hemorrhage issue in that patient, then uh, zone one would probably be the preferred zone. But obviously that's a little more of a, I think, area of discussion amongst people because there's not a clear, you know, you don't have a clear idea of what's actually bleeding. And, and how about you, Elizabeth? Any difference in the protocol uh, at LA County? No, I think that's a fairly, fairly universal. I mean, I think that's a very um, sort of good way of breaking it down and looking at it and how, uh, how you're going to assess. I think uh, for us, we... We definitely do not put a Reboa or prepare to put a Reboa in every single hypotensive patient. Um, we have uh, we're probably a bit more selective than uh, than your institution uh, in who we'll put them in. Um, we'll usually take the patient that is uh, hypotensive and not responding, and we're not able to get them up to the operating room or to angio. And those are the patients that are going to be more likely to get the Reboa uh, to transition them there. Uh, I think also our algorithm for pelvic bleeding differs uh, a little bit as well because we do probably, uh, more than many institutions, a lot of operative uh, intervention with internal iliac artery ligation for pelvic fractures. So bringing the uh, hypotensive patient with a pelvic fracture to the operating room is fairly common at our institution. Um, rather than doing the Reboa to transition to uh, interventional. So I think our, our threshold to go to the operating room is a bit different. So how about the patient who's pulseless? <laughs> Say they arrive pulseless, and we'll make it simple, penetrating mm -hmm. trauma, penetrating abdominal injury. They, they arrive pulseless or they progress to pulselessness in front of you. Yeah, so L.A. County has a very liberal uh, policy of thoracotomy. So the pulseless patient gets a thoracotomy and an aortic cross-clean. So do you think in your mind is Reboa contraindicated in the pulseless patient? I am supportive of a thoracotomy for pulselessness. Okay. How about you guys? Because there, there are a lot of people talking about using this instead of thoracotomy for pulselessness. So, you know, I think the comparisons that people make between Reboa and resuscitated thoracotomy are you know, both fair and unfair. They're very different procedures. If your only reason for opening the chest is to clamp the aorta, I think you could make the argument that Reboa is a less invasive, potentially less physiologic uh, derangement from a Reboa than you would have from opening an uninjured, you know, thoracic cavity. 
but I think the thing that causes people to hesitate, and it's fair, is that they, they are very comfortable. Most trauma surgeons are very comfortable with thoracotomy because that's what we were all trained to do in our you know, residencies and fellowships. So um, I think it's, at this point, surgeon-specific. If it were me, I would put a Reboa up, um, provided I felt confident that I could get arterial access quickly. So... Um, if we already had an arterial line, um, I would, you know, exchange it to the seven front sheath and, and put the Reboa up rather than, you know, putting a, a knife on someone's chest at this point because I can do the Reboa, you know, very quickly. Um, I would say as quickly as we can do a, a, a thoracotomy provided you've already got, you know, arterial access. If you don't have arterial access, I think it becomes then what are you most comfortable with. If you can quickly get access, um, I think it's likely the patient's not going to survive either way. So I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with doing Reboa. I also don't think there's anything wrong with opening the chest if that's what the surgeon's comfortable with. I think the key point is that you have to occlude the aorta as fast as you can. Right. And I think that... Uh, the method of doing that might differ from institution to institution, but the the key point there is that's not the time to be fancy or try something new. <laughs> yeah. So if you're if if Rebo if this is your first time to do Reboa, maybe that's not, not the, best. the best time to do it the first time. But as you've done it a lot and you become very facile with it, um, you know, we have started uh, doing prospective observational timing of our Reboas, and a lot of our faculty in Houston are putting them up in 75 seconds or less. So uh, I think that's at least equivalent to doing a thoracotomy in terms of speed, and it's a lot less of a physiologic insult to the patient. Yeah, I thought it was interesting yesterday. I don't know if you were in the session yesterday when I think it was Tom Scalia got up to the podium for a question, and he talked about how he, he no longer cross-clamps the aorta on his thoracotomies. And he thinks it creates a lot of cardiac injury from the massive increase in afterload. But but then he also said he's bought into Reboa <laughs> to occlude the aorta. So, so I, I don't know if you, you have any thoughts of, of that, or, or I don't understand how it's different than well, if you think, think cross-clamping hurts the heart, I would imagine Zoe yeah. and Reboa does the same thing. So I think one of the things that we're starting to see people talk about, and it's, again, it's we don't know yet. We don't have the data. Uh, this idea of partial Reboa. So as you know, you can't. I mean, I guess with a clamp, you could potentially partially occlude the aorta, but that's not really what we do. Um, but a lot of you know, there's a lot of case series and things coming out in the literature about partial occlusion. You know, occluding to a certain systolic blood pressure, and then you know, still allowing for permissive hypotensive, but supporting perfusion on, on some level. I think that's a very interesting concept. I don't, I don't know. We're not doing partial Reboa in Houston yet. It doesn't mean we won't. I just think that that's something that is a unique um, option with, with the endovascular occlusion uh, that I think may provide some benefit for patients. So, so any concern, uh, Elizabeth, about putting a Reboa up in these patients where, you know, we never know exactly what's injured, mm -hmm. and so who knows? Who knows if it's an iliac artery injury? Right. And you're putting a Reboa through that or an aortic injury. Right. Um, any concerns about that, or, or should we just not worry about it and put the catheter up? Well, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do, you're obviously always going to think about that, but a lot of it has to do with your patient selection and who you're choosing to do it. And 
you know, it, at least for us, I think our view is that this patient is probably not going to survive if we're not putting in a Reboa, you know, that or you know, doing some sort of intervention. But those are the patients that are getting to the point that we don't think that they're going to survive what we're doing right now is the patient that will put that in. So, uh, you know, I think you're you're a little bit sort of between a rock and a hard place at that point. So you go ahead with it. At some point, it's going to happen, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet, but at some point... A robot is uh, going to go through. We're going to have someone who's got a penetrating abdominal injury, and the wire or the you know sheath or the catheter is going to go through an injury. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily a call to abandon the procedure. Um, it's just like anything else we do. If you're putting the wire in and it feels funny, you should stop. If you're putting the catheter up and it feels funny, you should stop. Um, it's the same, you know, principles of any time we access a vessel. So um, I think as long as we respect those, you know, boundaries that we, we know are important um, and realize that it's going to happen and you just, we don't have a crystal ball to know that there's a hole in the iliac or know that there's a hole in the aorta, but that we recognize, you know, when something's not right and move on to alternate options. I think that's really important. So what about intraoperative use of Reboa? So so you're in the OR. Um, Do you think there's any role for intraoperative use, and have you used it in that scenario? In what scenario have you used it Absolutely. I've had a couple of places or a couple of patients where I've used it intraoperatively. Uh, One of them was someone who um, had had multiple prior laparotomies and got shot in the abdomen. Um, I knew it was going to be difficult to get in, but they were initially hemodynamically stable. And then we got to the OR, their pressure dropped, and I knew there was no way that I was quickly getting in the abdomen of someone who'd had four laparotomies and pelvic radiation. So that's a person that I put a Reboa up in the operating room. Um, I've also done it once for morbid obesity that you know, I knew we were going to have a really hard time getting to where we needed to be and we were bleeding and uh, needed to do that to, to sustain, you know, blood pressure while we were getting access. You know, so I think it's a great tool when you've got a technically very challenging case uh, because of either, you know, prior surgeries or, or body habitus. Um, I think it's a really great tool in, in that Um I've also had a partner who uh, went to the OR for presumed intra-abdominal hemorrhage, uh, got through the case, but then there was significant um, bleeding coming from the pelvis that couldn't be controlled with packing. And so they put up a balloon in Zone 3 as a you know uh, transition to get to interventional radiology uh, hmm. for that. So you know, I think as we continue to get experience with it, we're going to you know, probably come up with other indications for when we think it would be useful. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that the ER is not the only place that it can be used, and there's definitely um, the nice thing about the operating room too is that you you have sort of everything ready and draped. You have a little bit more of an idea of what you're going to be dealing with, and you have sort of the tools you need to fix the problem. And if it buys you that extra bit of time, and if your other option is going to be either making another incision and opening a, a second cavity that you know you don't need to do, or you know, the pelvis is a is a great example of that. I've used that for sure for bad pelvic bleeding, just to get over to a, to a uh, um, a hybrid suite. You know, just it's a it's very useful. I think. 
Okay, so zone one, Raboa, balloon is up. What's, what's the time limit? Clock is ticking, right? That's, that's one of my biggest concerns. Zone one, balloon is up, clock's ticking. What, what do you give as your time estimate of, you know, here, here's how long this can be up and have a reasonable chance of survival when you take the balloon down? Well, obviously, if you're putting a zone one, Raboa up, you know, you should be doing that while the OR is opening the, you know, instruments and, and the massive transfusion protocol is on the way to the room. So uh, if you're doing a zone one, I, I think your next step is operating room. It shouldn't be CT scanner. It shouldn't be angio suite. It should be OR for laparotomy. Um, I don't think we know what the magic number is. How long can we leave it up? We've had survivors in Houston um, have it up at 75 minutes. That's not the norm. I would say most of our cases, you know, 30, 40 minutes at most, because theoretically, if you don't have a, you know, complicated patient with, you know, multiple prior laparotomies mm -hmm. or some other, you know, you can get um, into the OR relatively quickly and, you know, take out the spleen or, you know, take out the kidney or whatever it is that's causing the, the major hemorrhage. Um, and so I, I really, I think most circumstances, we're not leaving it up for, you know, more than 45 minutes, at least in Houston, not for zone one. For zone three, maybe a little bit different because we're waiting on interventional radiology to come in, and sometimes that can be a bit longer. Um, the, the maximum, I don't think we know. I don't think we know the answer, not from human studies anyway. There, there's some animal data that says 60 minutes is tolerated as well as 30, but that 90 minutes is maybe, you know, where we start to see issues. Um, those other time points in between, I don't, I don't think we have a good answer yet. Yeah, I mean, we really try to stick to about 30 minutes uh, to have some sort of definitive control other than the balloon. Uh, when it comes to the pelvis, uh, if the balloon is up in the ER and we go up to the operating room, usually once we ligate the internal iliac arteries, we're able to, you know, that should be a fine time to come off easily. But um, but for zone one, uh, you know, I think that the the about 30 minute time is is you're going to start to see changes. You know, you losing your you're starting to get bowel ischemia and stuff. The uh, you know, I hesitate to say that, you know, I worry a little bit about sort of the partial Reboa, just sort of the rabbit hole that that goes down, because I feel pretty strongly that, you know, Reboa should not be used as like a, a blood pressure adjunct, you know, so to speak, you know, that that, that shouldn't be like, well, let's, we want to tip up the blood pressure a little bit, let's, let's do that with Reboa. But I think that the reverse uh, coming down partially is similar to how we'll do with an aortic cross clamp. I mean, it's usually not, okay, the clamp's coming off and you throw it on the tray or out the room. You know, it's, it's a little bit more of a dynamic process. You know, and, and you'll use your hand or a clamp or the Reboa, you come down slightly on the balloon. But um, but, you know, you slowly start to give that drink back. And I think that alters your time a little bit because sometimes you're able to come off the clamp a little bit. You're able to come down on the Reboa a little bit and, you know, accommodate with your anesthesia and sort of the whole team together. Uh, you start to see, you know, especially if you have multiple injuries, you see where your bleeding's coming from that you didn't get otherwise. And, you know, I think you can accommodate to that as you're coming down. So that can be a little bit more of a, of a window around that, 30 minutes. Yeah, and I think that part is really important, you know, when you're, when you're doing this and you're in the operating room. It's just like when you take off the aortic clamp. You know, you're, you're not going to just take it off and leave it off, and it's something that requires, you know, 
coordinated effort with your anesthesiologist, you know, let them know I'm about to unclamp the aorta. Uh, and, you know, I don't think we have a perfect protocol for how to do it yet, but I would say in my experience, you, you talk to anesthesia, you say, okay, I'm going to let the balloon down, and then you let it down a few cc's at a time, and you just hold it. And you see, and you're watching, you know, along with the anesthesia to see how the patient does. And you may have to go through several series of, you know, deflation, partial deflation, reinflation until you can, you know, get the balloon to come completely down. Um, but again, that shouldn't be a, a foreign concept to most of us that, you know, are used to taking clamps off of aortas and know that that's just the physiology of, of what happens when we do that. For sure. So, so this is obviously a hot topic. A lot of people interested in it. A lot of people jumping in and looking to start do this. So, so what concerns, if any, do you have that we may see now with a bunch of people adopting Reboa at, at their trauma centers? And, and obviously, many of these places are going to be relatively low volume where you use it. And they're not experts. They don't teach the best course. Um, what, 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 what kind of, what keeps you awake at night <laughs> worrying about what someone's going to do with these devices or, or what are the key danger areas that people should be aware of? Well, I think, you know, some of the things we've mentioned. So, you know, you want to put this in the right patient. 100%. You know, you, you don't want to put this in somebody who's, you know, blood pressure is 100 and you can be in the OR in five minutes um, and you're shoving a, you know, giant sheath up and they lose their leg because of it. So I think, you know, being very clear about, um, you know, these are patients that we're doing this, tip, hopefully in a little bit more of a proactive fashion, but these are people that are have significant hemorrhage um, that we think are going to require, uh, you know, massive transfusion and an, an emergent laparotomy. So especially with the larger systems, um, you know, Knowing that you may get to the point where the balloon is down and now you've got to pull the sheath and you've, you know, caused a dissection or you've got distal thrombus and A, recognizing that and then B, either knowing how to fix it appropriately yourself or at this point, you know, knowing that you have a vascular surgery colleague, if, you know, if you've really got an issue with the artery, um, you don't want to you know, have a patient, you know, have an ischemic complication or an amputation because you didn't repair the artery properly. So I think it's really important, especially as people are starting to use this, um, that they identify a colleague or colleagues in their institution that are, are willing to come in and help you if you get in, in trouble and the arteriotomy repair is not as straightforward or not as simple as you think it is, as you think it was going to be. Um, to know and not be afraid to call and ask for help because, you know, obviously we, we don't want to hurt patients uh, when we're doing this and, and recognizing that I think is really important for the user. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the, the thing that worries me the most probably about Reboi is that is the patient selection. I think that uh, exactly as you touched on, the, the use of Reboi in a patient that doesn't need it is just adding risk to uh, an environment that's already risky. I mean, a trauma patient coming in there's already has enough problems. You need to not create you know, a problem bigger than the one that you have in front of you. And I think that there's a potential to do that, you know, with sort of a new, a new technique. Um, so patient selection is definitely a concern. And then also the understanding that 
I think that we have to be very careful in in who is putting in the Reboa because the, uh, the Reboa is not that's not going to fix the problem. So you might get the blood pressure up and you might buy yourself, you know, 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, but you're not fixing any problem. And if, if you are not able and you don't have the resources at your institution to then fix the problem, um, you're not doing anybody any favors with this. And I think that uh, one of the most important things is to know that it's a it's a bridge. It's a, a bridge to definitive therapy. It's not an actual therapy in and of itself, and it's not a bridge to calling a surgeon. It's you know a bridge to getting yourself to the operating room um, because it, it doesn't buy you. I mean, we can talk about should it be twenty minutes, thirty minutes, forty minutes. It's not like three hours. Right. right. <laughs> so you know, it's you have to be able to. Um, you have to have a plan and you have to have the capability at your institution and the people available to to then you know follow up with that so along those lines you know there's been a couple reports now of pre-hospital reboa um at least one or two in the uk um you know what what are your thoughts on that is this is this something that's appropriate at all for the pre-hospital arena currently well, that's a tough one. So, you know, the, the pre-hospital reports from the U.K., um, you know, just to be clear, those were surgeons on a helicopter that were putting these up in the field. Um, I, I think the same issue, though, I have is, you know, time. So if you're, you know, putting it up and you're 15 minutes away from a trauma center on a helicopter with an OR on standby, okay, I can buy that, um, and you're going straight from the helipad and into the operating room, then okay, I, I, I'm not going to argue with that. Um, but putting one up and then, you know, 45-minute transport and then OR not ready, and, and now you're looking at 60, 75 minutes of balloon inflation time before you've even made an incision, I think that's probably not helping the patient. Um some would argue, though, that, well, that person would be dead if we didn't do it. And so I think that's where, you know, a lot of the push from not just pre-hospital providers but also emergency room physicians, you know, there's a lot of discussion among the world of emergency medicine of train me, teach me, I want to learn how to do this too. But, again, I think unless you're in a place where you have immediate access to definitive hemorrhage control, i.e. a trauma surgeon in an operating room, uh, it's it's probably not ready for, you know, use in those other areas because I don't really know that it's going to benefit the patient in terms of long-term survival. Sure. And, and that pre-hospital case, at least the first one, was zone three for right. a pelvic yeah. fracture. Right. This is not a zone one. And I think a lot of people lose that. Mm-hmm. People who aren't really familiar with it in depth confuse zone one and three and don't realize how different of an very issue different that is. Issues. Yeah. Very well, different issues. Very different. I think that also speaks to the person that was putting it in. And using that judgment and knowing all of sort of the different algorithms and options and, and ways that they can potentially follow that up with hemorrhage control and making that judgment comes from a very different place. And, um, you know, I think that it, people have, you know, different specialties, different trainings, different ways of looking at things. And, um, I mean, Laura, if you were on a you know, an ambulance and you went out and saw somebody and you decided to put in a Reboa, I think that your algorithms as to who you're going to put that in are going to be very different than a lot of other people. 
I'd be okay with you doing it. <laughs> okay, but so now, now what about? And and I actually I can see both sides of this argument. The ER doc who's at the rural hospital, he doesn't have a surgeon. You know, he's one of the places that transfers you your patients, and he has an unstable patient, or he's saying I need to be ready for an unstable patient, and you know I should be trained to do Reboa because I could put a balloon up and then get that patient, you know, to you where there's a surgeon. You know, again, that's a very difficult uh, path to go down. It's a very difficult path to go down because there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, and again, my biggest concern is the patient selection. And if somebody that does not need a Reboa gets a Reboa and dies or loses their leg from or a their bowel, or their bowel, yeah. <laughs> and they die because of that Reboa being placed when they didn't need it in the first place. I, my concern is that would be the more likely outcome than the person that actually needed it and that got to the center in time to actually have it make a difference. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential um, problems that can happen from Ebola. So I, I worry a lot about that. And just on choice of device now, um, I know the 7 French is out. I, I think it's a great, great advance, especially in the access complications you're going to see. Um, it, is there any role for still using the bigger devices, or should we just be exclusively going to the seven French or or similar or smaller ones that come out in the future? Or do you still use the any of the other larger systems? So we, when we were able to get the seven French system, we switched exclusively to that. Um, we we used the you know Cook system for a very long time because that was what was available, and we all got comfortable with it, and you know it it worked. Um, but I think if you have the ability in your institution to get the seven French system, um, you know, that's what I would, you know, say if in a perfect world, everybody has a, this, you know, the smaller system, not just because of the arterial access site complications and the potential for that, but it, it's really, it eliminates a very cumbersome step in the process. You know, when you put that you know, 260-centimeter amplats wire up, and you have to do serial mm -hmm. dilations to get a 14-front sheath up, that's the longest part of yeah. the procedure. And this is a, if you're putting a Reboa up, time is money. You know, it's it's not an elective, you know, endovascular stent placement here. It's somebody who's bleeding to death, and those few minutes you're spending doing all of those steps are really important. So the fact that you don't have to do all of that, um, I think, is one of the big advantages of the wireless seven-front system. Um, but if you don't have that system, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with using it. And in most sense, we use the Cook system because that's what we already had in our hospital because our vascular surgeons were using it in their endo suite. So it was easy for us to get. We didn't have to get a new loss of number and, you know, contract and all that kind of stuff. So if... If you're using it, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, you just have to be aware that there's a different set of complications and pitfalls that come with each system. And you guys are using 7 French now exclusively? Yeah, we switched over as well. I mean, for exactly the same reasons. I mean, the 12 French works. Uh, it's, you know, it, it does definitely work, and I agree. If that's what you have and that's what you're able to use, then, then that's what you should use. Um, but 
the seven friends system, I mean, it, it just decreases a few potential complications and improves your time. So. Okay, so we'll, we'll finish off, and, and I'll ask each one of you, uh, you know, we know where we are at the current status of Roboa. Uh, what, what do you think are some or the most exciting or the biggest thing you want to see developed in the next generation uh, that can really take this technology and make it safer, more user-friendly, more effective? And we'll start with you, Laura. Well, so I think it's smaller is always better, right? So um, being able to, you know, go through an even smaller, you know, than seven French uh, would be phenomenal. Um, I would like us to, you know, come up with a, a, a way uh, to maybe be able to evaluate position of the catheter other than having to use four radiographs. So, um, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on with using ultrasound. Obviously, that's limited sometimes by body habitus, but you know, having a, a way um, that would be more accessible to everyone, you know, to confirm placement, uh, which obviously would be interesting as well for, you know, pre-hospital or, you know, deployment situations, you know, far forward operating areas where, you know, you don't have a digital x-ray in the field to say this is where the balloon is and I'm putting it up. If that's where we're moving, um, you know, we've got to have, you know, ultrasound capability to, to tell exactly um where the balloon is and make sure we're in the right spot. So I think all, you know, I believe Revo is here to stay. I, I believe that um, now that we are using it and there's an interest in it, you know, hopefully we'll see the technology continue to accelerate in terms of, you know, smaller and, and you know, easier to use and, and um, you know, kits that have everything in it, you know, as opposed to I have to open a, a kit now to put in my A-line, and I have to open a kit that has my sheath and my wire, and then I have to open the, you know, Reboa catheter itself. Um, you know, having, I mean, that would be huge, you know, just from a convenience standpoint as someone who does this a lot, to not have to open five different things to do this one procedure to have a single kit that has everything in it would be a huge advancement, um, you know, just in terms of something easy that, that could be done. Yeah, and that's a great point. When you buy one of these kits, it is not a everything you need kit. You right. need to have up there's six other, other things. There's other things <laughs> in it, things. you know. Uh, so th those are things on my wish list. All right. So what do you think, Elizabeth? Next yeah. advances. Yeah, I pretty much, I mean, I agree. The, the key is going to just be to streamline down the process as best as possible. I mean, I think that everybody agrees that, especially as the indications for robo are expanding, the more rapidly you can get it in and the safer, uh, the better. So... For sure, using, the, I mean, I think even just watching the difference of having the seven French sheath, I mean, it's... It's tremendous. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a serious difference, yeah. I mean, it really, the the procedure and the speed and just the ease with which you can do it um, is, uh, is quite substantial uh, difference. And so uh, you definitely you can see how streamlining that, making it smaller, and the decreasing the number of moving parts, basically, in the process... Um, is good and definitely having everything on the same kit. I mean, we the number of times you get to a step and it's not there, <laughs> you know, and so you have to go to your backup bag or something. So it's um, you know having it all in one place is really nice. Not having to not having to think about it, it makes it a lot more automated. Okay, well, and I think we have a whole bunch of Roboa papers and articles to look forward to over the next year. I'm, I'm guessing, like we're seeing every edition of the Journal of Trauma now. Um, I want to thank you both for this interview. This was great. And, again, everyone tune in to the webinar in October. 
Uh, and if you miss it, it's all it'll be posted on the website as an enduring event, so you can pull it up anytime. So, uh, Elizabeth and Laura, thanks a lot. Thanks again for joining us. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.